Hello, my name is Andrew Gary, and welcome to Seismic Sound Off In Depth Conversations in Applied Geophysics. In this insider's look at the leading edge, I'm joined by Laura Caramonte, technical leader in the Advanced Generation Sector CO2 Capture and Storage Group at the Electric Power Research Institute. We will discuss TLE's January special section on carbon dioxide in the subsurface. In this engaging conversation, Laura and I discuss the importance of this topic for applied geophysics, key takeaways from each paper, and what one mystery she hopes to solve as a geophysicist. For links to this month's special section, visit seg.org forward slash podcast. Now for our conversation. So this was a, a new topic for me, exploring carbon dioxide in the subsurface. So just so I can understand a little bit better, could you briefly explain the importance or provide the importance of this topic for applied geophysics? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so carbon dioxide in this, the injection in the subsurface has been going on for a long time, uh, especially in this country for several decades. The oil industry has used CO2 to actually enhance uh, recovery of, of oil. Traditionally, uh, the CO2 injection, so the oil industry had to buy the CO2, so it was an added cost, and the focus was to minimize the amount of CO2 to be used in order to maximize the secondary recover of the oil. Uh, so there was no much attention regarding what happened to this CO2. Um, the focus was to try not to lose anything that needed to be replaced, so to keep costs down. And a lot of the effort was with traditional applied geophysical methods on for formation evaluation to make sure that the CO2 flood was going to work there and, and flow simulations to, to understand how it works, etc. But with the later um, recognition of climate change and the and also the recognition of um, the need to limit the CO2 emissions to the to the atmosphere, one of the technologies that uh, is very strong proposed to minimize this uh, release of CO2 is carbon sequestration. So basically capture the CO2 from, there are different uh, ways that so you can capture it in, in large power plant or large point sources, or some people propose air direct air capture. And the idea is once you capture, you transport it and you inject it underground. So uh, one of the strongest proposals for injecting the CO2 to have an impact on, on emission reduction is actually to inject it in uh, uh, saline formations that are everywhere, or perhaps depleted oil and gas reservoirs where we know that there is a reservoir and a trap or a fluid and you could store the CO2 there uh, securely. But an intermediate step would be the utilization of the, the CO2, and this is where the traditional enhanced recovery with CO2 come, come, comes in. So you, you use the CO2 to extract oil, but then later on you make sure that you are putting the CO2 in the subsurface. So then there is an added use of applied geophysics, which is actually to monitor the CO2, because it wouldn't make sense to spend millions of dollars uh, injecting the CO2, trying to sequester it, if later on it, it actually goes to another part of the reservoir and starts leaking and it seeps its way again to the atmosphere. So the monitoring of the CO2 has become a very important application of geophysics. 
it's a, a interesting history that, that got us to, to where this is relevant for applied geophysics there. Be, before we, we look at the papers individually, what resonated with you while you were working on this special section? So, well, so there are two parts that resonated for me. One is, um, I guess a surprise, we, we as a researchers, we see it every day, but, you know, seeing everything together is like how much the, our knowledge has increased with time <laughs> from early work. So that, that is impressive. And of course, we have much more work to do. And the other thing is that um, that more and more, so as, as I mentioned in this history of CO2, there was the traditional focus on the oil industry of using the CO2. And then this uh, focus on sequestration that comes as a climate mitigation strategy. And actually more and more you're seeing how uh, in the oil industry, there is this recognition that CO2 emissions should be limited and, and how it more uses their expertise and combines projects. One of one of them, a couple of the papers actually uh, work both, uh, you know, like there were analyses that are both uh, for uh, utilization of the CO2 or uh, sequestration as well. Mm. So starting to look at the individual papers, Gia et al. explore how to optimize the CO2 huff and puff process and therefore achieve the best enhanced oil recovery performance especially in tight formations like the Bakken formation. So what did their particular study highlight? Well, um, so again, going um, a little bit of history also, the CO2 has been traditionally, this CO2 flood has been traditionally used in a typical oil reservoirs like uh, permeable sandstones. And with the shale gas uh, revolution and more and more oil being uh, found in very tight formations, uh, these type of studies are important in trying to, to understand how the CO2 could be used in these type of, uh, of environments. And they actually show that uh, the CO2 half and puff process, process uh, in these type formations, such as the, the bacon, could be useful. And they conducted a, um, a lot of sensitivity analysis to try to understand how the CO2 injection rate the oil production time and the soaking. So basically that means like when you inject the CO2, how, how long do you leave it in the formation before trying to extract the oil? What was the impact uh, for the incremental oil recovery factor? Because one of the biggest issues in this type formation is like the, the oil recovery factor is, um, is very low. So they, they actually show, you know, like um, several conclusions from their study, but it's showing promising results of using the CO2 in, in impermeable formation. So Wang et al. focused their study on a thinly layered heterogeneous system such as the Ordos Basin in Western China, jumping around the world here. What were a couple of their key takeaways? So one of the takeaways, and again, this is uh, coming from my focus on uh, more permanently store the CO2 <laughs> in the subsurface. It was very interesting to read this study um, in the Ordos Basin in China and how they are actually trying to study both uh, the injecting the CO2 for uh, oil recovery as well as, as for sequestration. But it was very interesting to see that they were doing core uh, flooding experiments, um, focusing on, on the reservoir damage that it could be caused for precipitations when, when uh, asphalting precipitations when you are injecting the CO2. And this is, again, to try uh, to find the best. They, con they compare two different um, CO um, recovery techniques, only injecting CO2 or actually alternating CO2 with water, uh, to try to, to give a better understanding of which are the, which are the better techniques for, uh, for recovering the oil. Hmm. 
Speaking of uh, techniques, better techniques, in Vasco et al., that paper provides a review of two different geodetic techniques, such as satellite-based interferometric synthetic aperture radar. That's an interesting word there. And, And they're using CO2 storage monitoring programs. So what captured your imagination in reading about these particular two field cases? So um, there are two two things that are, are very interesting for me here. One is, you know, it's, a, it's, it's very promising to see that how these geodetic techniques that uh, allows a much more um, temporally um, resolution on, on monitoring techniques and lower the cost considerably uh, comparing to other traditional techniques like uh, 3D seismic methods. These techniques that are that allow us to recover much more information at lower cost and therefore allow us for a better monitoring of the of the fluid movement in the subsurface was a, it's something that is very very promising. I mean, it's, it's a, it, some of these techniques are already established, and one of the things that it was uh, very positively promising for me, sorry, is the fact that. Um, this one of the case studies was in an active enhanced oil recovery operation. So basically, you are injecting the CO2, but at the same time, you are extracting the oil. So the dynamics in the reservoir are very complex. There is a lot of noise in, to, in the data recovered, and they were able to still be able to observe important information that could be used to try to identify the phase of the fluid on the reservoir. So that, that was uh, one of the of the highlights for me of the paper to, to show that even in a noisy environment, these techniques uh, could help you uh, monitor the, the reservoir. And the other one that is uh, uh, also very promising is like, um, so basically what they are doing is uh, just understanding, they are measuring surface deformation and they are using it to, end, to try to understand the fluid flow on the reservoir. And the way that they are doing it's actually kind of an inverse problem. So they basically try to uh, solve for volume, uh, for reservoir volume change or an aperture change if there is an an evolving fracture. And by putting it as an inverse problem, what they are doing is actually um, simplifying it into a mechanical problem. And you don't need like complex reservoir models or coupled reservoir fluid models with geomechanics which slow down a lot the analysis, but at the same time, it introduces a lot of uncertainty because then you have much more parameters that you need to solve. So by, by, by simplifying this problem, it allows us to, to have a rapid sampling and a quick turnaround for, the, for images of these. And, it's, and even, if you, like even more, if you combine it with um, in-depth measurements, which, for example, the authors mention a couple like... A, strain determination from time-lapse seismic analysis or fiber optic cables for strain measurements. If you combine both of them and you have this quick turnaround on on the analysis of the data, you can even be talking about real-time monitoring of the the CO2 movement. Or if you are considering in areas where you have the risk of induced seismicity, you can also be kind of analyzing the real-time progression of fractures. So that is um, that is something that is being done in some in some areas, but uh, when you are considering things that are so deep and with so much data, is is still uh, in early processes, but it's very very promising. There is a lot to unpack and explore in that paper there, and yeah. and now looking at the last paper in the special section, there's four in this month's special section. 
Zakharova et al. explore the sequestration potential of the Newark Basin, and they provide a summary of geologic and geophysical research performed in that basin over the last two decades. The basin potential for CO2 storage appears low, but select formation properties are promising. Why do the authors conclude that the potential could be low and what formation properties might be promising? Yeah, so so basically what um, what you are looking, the, the CO2 sequestration world, it follows a pattern very similar to the oil industry. So this, this paper goes more to an kind of like exploration stage in which you don't know, you're looking at the whole basin and you don't know much of what are the characteristics of, of the formation and you try to identify which will be the optimal target. And ideally, um, what you need is a high permeable formation that could receive the CO2 and that has a, a big, um, large storage capacity, so porosity permeability. And one other consideration in the case of CO2 is that you need to have very strong seals or impermeable formations on, on, on the top of it in order to make sure that the CO2 uh, won't escape. In addition to that, so you could have like, you know, um, very much more less permeable formation that which will reduce your capacity. But in addition to that, they they explore, for example, other type of formations such as basalt. Those basalt, they are crystalline rock that they don't have permeability or porosity in the rock itself, but that is actually given by fracture. So a lot of people propose that those could be um, good sequestration uh, targets and the CO2 could interact with the basalt and actually be mineralized and permanently trapped there. But in order to to do that, what you need is that you need to make sure even more that you have strong seals that will prevent the CO2 from migrating rapidly to the surface because these fractures that will be your uh, storage volumes are, or storage space are actually um, the CO2 could migrate through them much more rapidly, mm. if it makes sense. Do, yes. Am I answering? You are question? answering. Yeah, that, that does yeah. make sense there. Um, and there's always the paper for people to read as well to seek further details of what you're explaining there. So kind of jumping back to where we started with some of your, your looking at the special section what was one thing that surprised you from these papers? Uh, so I guess, um, so as a surprise, I would say uh, this, uh, the, this possibility of, uh, of actually have a, a real-time powerful monitoring techniques. I don't know if it, I would call it surprising because there is a, a strong... Um, body of research on that and is definitely what people are trying to achieve, but uh, it definitely makes it uh, seem achievable and it's, that is very promising. Mm. What do you hope readers of this special section will take away from these four papers? Um, I would hope they, they kind of have a sense of the broad uh, application of uh, geo- geophysics uh, with working with CO2 what CO2 is useful for and what do we need, what are the challenges and what do we need to focus on in order to, uh, this is very biased towards the, the my research, but basically <laughs> what uh, what the technical challenge and the efforts we need to focus in order if we use uh, CO2 sequestration to reduce 
carbon emissions to the atmosphere just to make it in a to do it in a safe and a technically sound way. Mm. One final question here: If you could just solve one mystery as a scientist, what would you solve? So I, I, I would say so. One of the the things that I would like to answer as a scientist would be. In a lot of the research that I'm involved, which has to do with uh, um, assuring a safe deployment of, of CCS, of carbon sequestration in the subsurface, or perhaps uh, a safe exploitation of thermal energy from the Earth in geothermal uh, technologies, one of the biggest issues and risks is whether by doing that you are actually increasing the likelihood of micro seismicity or even bigger seismicity. So, and that is directly related how the um, the mechanical aspects of how the the rocks behave. So that would be a very interesting topic that it's directly related to the preventions of earthquakes. uh, And that is definitely very appealing. On the other spectrum, and I'm cheating because it's not (laughs) only one, but one thing that I would love to solve is how to influence human behavior to be able to tackle things that are absolutely recognized. For example, in climate change, I think uh, it's maybe not everyone, but it's a very, very strong majority and a lot of will to do things to help tackle the climate change issue and uh, an emergency that we are living. Uh, But there is a lot of uh, political and perhaps inertia issues on, on taking measurements toward that. So having trying to solve how the mind works in order to create more action. That would be also something very appealing, but it's very general. <laughs> that would be very appealing to me as well. So that I, I like that we're, that we're going to solve that one together. <laughs> Is there anything I should have asked you that I did not? Yeah, perhaps one question could be if there is a big topic or an important topic to solve regarding CO2 that it will be, that is not, shown in the papers that they were submitted. Did did a particular topic come to mind while you were reviewing these four papers? Yes. Yeah, so, for example, one of, of uh, the biggest issues for me, and again, this is my bias because this is what I'm looking at, but I do believe that is one of the stronger ones, is that when you are actually talking about putting CO2 in the subsurface or, or putting largest amount of any other fluids like wastewater disposal, et cetera, one of the biggest hazards and issues to be solved is uh, the potential for induced seismicity or, or larger seismic events. So I think a submission on on the advances that had been done studying induced seismicity would be something uh, important. And there are many work out there. So you know, like if if the reader or the listener is interested on in that, they could they could find work on that. But definitely keep in mind that that is a big issue. Well, wonderful. I really appreciate your time and thoughtfulness in answering these questions and for uh, putting you on the spot about what mysteries you're going to solve. So, <laughs> Sorry yeah. about that. I mean, it was a difficult question. It's a very difficult question, but, uh, you know, sometimes when you're researching, you know, you, it's good to just think a little bigger sometimes. And yeah. um, so thank you for, for thinking on it and all these questions and uh, appreciate your time editing this special section as well. Okay. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you for listening to SEG's flagship podcast. Please share this episode with a friend, colleague, or manager that would enjoy hearing this episode. 
Your recommendation is the single best action you can take on behalf of SEG's podcast. Go to our website at seg.org forward slash podcast to find all our episodes and learn how you can listen to this podcast directly on your phone without downloading an app. Original music by Zach Bridges. This episode was hosted, edited, and produced by me, Andrew Gary. The SEG podcast team is Jennifer Crockett, Allie McGinnis, and Mick Sweeney. Thank you for listening. This is Seismic Sound Off, signaling off.